spiritual revol- perennial wisdom and the spiritual revolution. I don't know what that is. It was a good title when Jill asked me for a title. <laughs> we'll get to it. But I want to lead into it with something I'm doing in a couple of days in Huntsville. There's a, an organization in Huntsville, interfaith organization in Huntsville, that's celebrating its 50th anniversary, which is pretty cool. That people can be, can be have a community that's, that's legitimately interfaith, and that's been going on for so long and hasn't just faded out. And I'm going to be delivering the keynote at their dinner, and the topic they gave me was the future of religion. <laughs> they only gave me 20 minutes, though, so <laughs> you can't really do much about the future of religion. But they came to Murfreesboro. They sent a couple representatives to sort of guide me through the talk I was supposed to give. Because this is what we want to hear, which makes it easy if I was a rule follower. But it didn't work. So anyway, what they want to know is what's the demographic, you know, like... So, so if you look at the Pew studies of, of uh, people's religious observance and religious associations, affiliations, it's very clear. The younger you are, the less you're involved. It's not rocket science. Now, that may change as people who are younger end up being older, and maybe they will belong to something. But right now, the numbers show that... Uh, and we, you know, we talk about millennials, but now it's already, millennials are, some of them are almost middle-aged. So it's really Generation Z. And I guess they go back to what, Alpha and Beta, they start all over again? I don't know how it works. Whoever came up with, you know, starting with Generation X, they probably should have started earlier in the alphabet. <laughs> they weren't long-term thinkers. But anyway, Generation Z is not interested in religion. They're not belongers. I don't know if it's, remember the book Bowling Alone a few years ago, which was a sociological study about how Americans just don't join things anymore. So that may or may not be true nationwide. I mean, that's just one study. But the Pew study is large and it's reputable and it suggests that the younger you are, the less involved you are in activities like church, synagogue, mosque, temple, that kind of thing. So I'm supposed to go and talk about, okay, that's the demographic, so what are we going to do about it? Well, nothing. That's just the demographic. That's just a fact. That doesn't really tell you about the future of religion. It tells us something, maybe, at least in that snapshot, about the current state of affiliation. It doesn't tell you about the future of religion. If you really want to understand the future of religion, and we'll find out if they do on Tuesday... If you really want to understand the future of religion, you have to understand what religion is. Now, there are books and books and books and books about what religion is. All of them are wrong because what religion is, I'll tell it to you, you don't need a book. Religion is the natural human response to the fear of death. That's what religion is. The earliest religions were prehistoric. And we know that prehistoric people, when they buried their dead, they buried them with utensils because they thought they were going somewhere. Because the human being, by and large, the egoic self, cannot imagine not existing. So we know the body dies, but we imagine something else lives on. Now, I'm not saying what's true and what's false. I I haven't done this yet. Or if I have, I don't remember it. (laughs) But 
you may believe that. No, it's, I'm, I'm, there's no way I'm ending, right? My body goes into the ground, but I'm going to go to another life. I'm going to go to another place, another plane, another, you know, whatever. Somehow, it's very difficult for us humans to imagine our individual non-existence. Religion is a way to institutionalize, now this is my prejudice, and I recognize it's a prejudice, so don't freak out, just yell at me at talkback. But religion is a way to institutionalize the fantasy that you won't die. Right? Now you may not think it's a fantasy. I'm, spoilers, <laughs> you die. Spoiler alert, right? But religion helps you not, not think about that. So even in, in the Bible, which has a very, it's very old, and so it's very primitive in its theology, the Bible doesn't have a sense of heaven or hell. Talk about the Hebrew Bible. doesn't have a sense of heaven or hell, but talks about being gathered unto your ancestors. So it sounds, I guess, they thought, it sounded comforting. Now, I have to think about who my ancestors are. I didn't want to spend time with them when they were alive. I don't really want to be gathered unto them later, but okay. <clears throat> There's still something going on. <clears throat> as long as people are afraid of death, religion will just continue to be what it is, the institutionalized avoidance of the reality of our own mortality. That's the future. You can change the theology, you can change the flags, you can change the music, but that's what it is. Now, I'm talking about mainstream conventional religion. I'm not talking about Unitarians. I don't know what Unitarians you know, think about this stuff. I tend to imagine that most of you figure when you're dead, you're dead. But maybe not. <clears throat> maybe not. Maybe you all go to the big you know, Unitarian convention in the sky or something. <laughs> I don't know. But the, 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 the corollary that goes with this religion as an institution maintaining the fantasy of our immortality is that we want, we, I, make it you know, singular, I want to live forever. I want those who think like me to live forever, but I have no problem with other people living forever in a very bad place. Right? That's, how, that's how we not only carry on the notion that I won't die, but my prejudices will live on with me because the people I like will also go with me to wherever I think I'm going, which is always a good place. I forgot the actual numbers from Pew, but more people believe in hell. If I have my numbers right, more people believe in hell than in heaven, and no one on the, the, in the surveys ever says they're going to heaven. Uh, sorry, they're going to hell. <laughs> They're all going to heaven. So it's like the numbers really are confusing because everyone you ask, no, no, I'm who believes in heaven, says, I'm going to heaven, but I know five people who are going to hell. You know, I made that up five. You know, I know people who are going to hell. So the population of hell is actually larger than the population that people imagine heaven to be. Now that sounds very heavenly, then right there. It's like, <laughs> that was perfect timing. <laughs> so, you get this institutionalized support for the fantasy of immortality, but then you also get this bifurcation. You get this sense of who's going to go to heaven and who's going to go to hell. 
Now, not every religion talks that way, and not every branch of every religion talks that way. I know Unitarians don't talk that way. But it's fairly mainstream to imagine a better place and a worse place, heaven and hell. We need heaven and hell if we're going to maintain this fantasy of the egoic self, because my egoic self is very judgmental. There are some people I, and ideas that I like, that I think are true, and those I want to continue, so those people go to heaven. And then there are some people and ideas that I think are just horrible, and those people with their ideas should go to hell. So Rob Bell, you know who he, he, he is, Rob Bell? <clears throat> Rob Bell was this major <clears throat> evangelical figure who was very popular, had a huge church, <clears throat> very well respected in the evangelical world, wrote numbers of books, made a whole series of movies that I uh, contacted him about to say how great they were. He was really a brilliant guy. And then he wrote a book called Love Wins. <coughs> I'll see if that helps. In his book, Love Wins, Rob Bell says, I have a problem with hell. He says, I have no problem imagining Adolf Hitler in hell. My problem is that I can't imagine, can't imagine, Mahatma Gandhi standing next to him. Because in the evangelical world, Hitler would go to hell because he was evil. Mahatma Gandhi would go to hell because he wasn't an evangelical Christian. So Rob Bell says, this can't be true. This can't be right. I get that we'll send you know, evil people to hell. Or God will send evil people to hell. But I don't understand why God would send someone like Mahatma Gandhi to hell. So in the end of his book, he says, love wins. Eventually, all loving people go to heaven. And you even get the sense from the book that eventually everyone becomes a loving person, even evil people. He was fired. Uh, his standing in the evangelical world plummeted. And the book became burnable. And he was completely you know, rejected. He rebounded beautifully. And he's got his own community now, and he teaches what he teaches. And the only people who join are people who agree with him, and together they will go to heaven, and the people who rejected him probably will go to hell. But we need that, that bifurcation. We need the good people and the bad people, because the ego is based on that. That's what the ego is. I like this, and I don't like that. I like you, and I don't like you. I, I gravitate toward one thing, I don't gravitate toward something else, or I actually, or I actively am repulsed by something else. That's how the ego works. So religion is a human invention. Now you could say, and I'm not, I'm willing to go with this, you could say religion is invented by God. I'll, I'll go with that. I'll just say, and God is a human invention. <laughs> so any way you want to do it, eventually it comes down to us. So religion reflects us. Our psyches. The future of religion depends on the future of the human mind. And I don't see that changing much. And we have all kinds of technologies. We have all kinds of political um, advances, I would say, sociological advances. We live in a, even though I think it's 
it may be doomed in the next few years. We live in a society that's certainly far more advanced than medieval times and more more advanced than many other countries in the world at the moment. So I see there's evolution in technology, there's evolution in uh, political structures and social structures. I know there's change, but I don't know if there's actual change in the human psychology, in the human psyche, in the psychology of the human being. If we've actually overcome in any way, shape, manner, or form the tribalism at the root of the ego. Or, just like our ancient forebears, we divide people into warring camps, and these people win and these people lose, and I want to be on the winning team. Or, I want to declare my team to be the winning team. Has that changed anything? Now, among some people it has. I would, I would think. I mean, we go through history and identify people from the prophet Micah to, you know, who says all God wants is justice, compassion, and humility, to Jesus, to the Buddha, to Lao Tzu. I mean, there's, there's people, to Muhammad in the early days of, of his preaching before he ended up running a, a country, a city to um, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. We have these amazing people who have brought us a different message, but humanity as a whole, I don't see the change. The future of religion depends on the future of our psyches, and our psyches really aren't evolving. They're just replicating the same nonsense. Now, I don't know if it's, if it's nature or nurture. I watched my little three-and-a-half-year-old grandson, and... He's already into good guys and bad guys. Now, he didn't get that from us. Uh, because, I mean, if you talk to me, it's only bad guys. <laughs> but he got that. And I, I mean, I, I, I don't know for, it's like Bill Maher. I don't know if this for a fact, but I think this is true. He watches a lot of documentaries about penguins. He's watched every documentary about penguins that you can get on Netflix and, and all of those, those streaming services. And he's watched them all multiple times. And he doesn't like, but he sees the penguins have enemies. The birds that eat them, the sea lions that eat them. And the penguins in the penguin documentaries are always the heroines and the heroes. So, you know, they're all trying to get food for their babies, and then whoop, they get swallowed up by some big sea lion, and clearly that's the bad guy, the sea lion. So maybe he's getting it from just the way nature works, and he doesn't understand that it's not good or bad, it's just the way nature works. The sea lion has to eat, and the only thing on the menu is penguin. So I don't know where, because I don't know anything about child psychology, I just know that when your child, at least in my case, when my child grows up, he needs a psychologist. But that, and that's my fault. I get that. But that's because I don't know anything about child psychology. So my, my daughter-in-law and my wife are always telling me, no, you don't say that to the kid. You don't know. It's too late. I've totally ruined his life. But, so I don't know if it's nature or nurture, but I don't see the change, right? You follow me? It's just... He's three and a half, and he's already got you know, warring battles in, it, in, in, his, in his fantasy life. Religion is just going to continue to reflect that. The only thing that we can do, if it can be done, is to change our psyches. Now, 
This could happen maybe, though I doubt it, over eons of evolutionary change. Maybe it just happens naturally. I, I tend to doubt it. <clears throat> even if you look at, and I'm only saying this to you, even if we look at Star Trek, because <laughs> we're the Star Trek guy, even if you look at, at, at sci-fi and you know, looking at the future, there's always an enemy, right? The Federation of Planets had the Klingons. And then when we decided, no, we have to be friendly with the Klingons, we then got the, the Romulans, right? <laughs> yeah, and then the Borg. Because there's no, there's no drama without an enemy. There's no, there's, no, there's no purpose. If everything is great, there's no point to anything. That's not really true, but that's just sort of the way it works in our minds. So we always have to have a, an enemy, even in our, in our fantasies of the far flung future. So, but is that, is that locked in? It may be locked into our, if everything just goes the way our normal brains work. But is there a way to change that? That's the perennial wisdom spiritual revolution. According to, right, I'm just going to cite one guy, Ken Wilber. I don't know how many of you are familiar with Ken Wilber. But according to Ken Wilber, who's a great scholar of Everything. That's what's wrong with Ken Wilber. He's, he's like, he's a, uh, what's it called, polymath. He just knows everything about everything and tries to put everything about everything into every book he writes. So I only read the flaps of the books. <laughs> but according to what I've read of Ken Wilber's stuff, Wilber says the only way to affect a change and then in parentheses, Krishnamurti, who writes, who died a long time ago, and Ken Wilber's still alive, Krishnamurti called it the revolution of the mind. The only way to affect this change, this revolution of the mind, is through meditation. So Wilber's got this whole scheme of how to measure these things. But what he shows is that people who are serious about meditation, not people who meditate in order to get through a horrible day at a horrible job, Right? That's how we use mindfulness training in the, in the United States. Your life sucks, so you, you, you know, your job sucks and you want to quit, but you need, can't quit because you need the health insurance. So to, uh, to minimize your stress, you practice mindfulness. They're bringing mindfulness into schools in order to avoid having to actually change the way the schools are run. We just keep the kids, can't meditate that, medicate them, so you meditate them into being quiet especially the boys, who are usually the ones who are the most rambunctious. So you can only, there's only so much Ritalin you can take, so eventually you have, to try, you have to try mindfulness training. But we're not talking about that. We're talking about serious contemplative meditation practice every day, and, and Wilbur's talking as an adult. And he says that the, that the studies show you can actually move from the most tribal mindset, really, not just us against them, but me against everyone. Who can move that beyond just the me against you, beyond even the us against them, which is just the communal extension of me against you. You can move several layers and almost, if you're starting at the bottom here, of just me against the world, you can almost get to a point where maybe you can glimpse what he calls moving from um, us against them to all of us together, you know, a much higher you know, frame. And, 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 and the people on the bottom can move up a couple levels. 
which will change religion because it's changing their psyche. The people in the middle can get to that place where it's all of us together, which will change their religions because it's changing their psyche. And the people like us in this room who are already just this shy of enlightenment, we can get to a whole other level where we recognize it's not all of us together, it's one thing happening as all things. And that's the premise, the foundational premise of perennial wisdom. We sang a hymn to that today. Um, I can't remember the words, but some people call it evolution, some other people call it God, right, that hymn. Clearly, that, that message hasn't gotten to the people who don't want evolution taught in the schools. But that idea is the first point of the four points of perennial wisdom. I'll give you the other three in a sec. Perennial wisdom is the uh, brother Wayne Teasdale coined the term, and he says it's the mystic heart of all the world's religions. When you don't listen to the theologians, you don't listen to the rabbis, uh, preachers, priests, pastors, imams, and all that, who are only working at the surface level, only coming from that real us and them kind of psych, uh, psychological level, when you listen to the mystics, does it make any difference what mystic we're talking about, what tradition the mystic comes from? The mystics all say the same thing. Four points. One, everything is an, a manifesting of a singular process. And you can call it, and the mystics do, by the names of their cultures. So some people call it God, some people call it uh, Yahweh, some people call it uh, Brahmins, you know, they, they've got a million names. Tao, the mother, all of these things. I, used, I now use the word uh, from Hebrew, my, my favorite word at the moment, is in Hebrew, chiyut, which means aliveness. That every living thing is a manifesting of a singular process of aliveness or enlivening. The best definition is St. Paul's definition in the book of Acts, Chapter 17, verse 38. Oh, I think that's right. Um, where he says, God is uh, that in whom we live and move and have our being. That's, that's the, the, the... Every mystic realizes that and languages it in her own way. Point number two, you can know that directly through contemplative practice. You can test it. You can't test heaven and hell. Well, you can but by the time you figure out what the answer is, you can't come back and tell anybody. So that, that's, that, most religious claims are untestable. But this one you can test, and you test it through meditation. And when you learn a meditation practice, it could be sitting meditation, it could be gardening, it could be chanting, it could be a lot of different things. Anything that takes you out of the narrow egoic mind and melts you into the, the cosmic mind or the self with a capital S proves your own experience will prove the truth of point number one. Everything is part of the singular aliveness. You can know it directly. Number three, when you know it directly, you can only respond to life with justice and compassion. Or, to use my gut, justice, compassion, and humility. There's, it's not a rule. There's no rules. One of the cool things about coming in here, and I've never seen it, and I've seen this in other UU places too, all you got the most are the flags. You don't have the rules that go with the flags, right? It's just, we like the flags. They're nice. But if they gave you the rules, you have to follow Sharia in Islam or Halakha in Judaism or church law or all the kinds of things that, that religions are made of. 
We wouldn't like that. <clears throat> the po- third point of perennial wisdom is when you awaken in, with, and as the aliveness, you can only act compassionately from the inside. There's no rule needed. You know how to act. Right? You may not know the specific of what's the best thing to do, but you know that you're always going to act, as the Bible says, uh, in order to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. And then the fourth point of perennial wisdom is this is the human being's highest calling. That's why we're here. We're not here to get rich. We're not here to, to dominate. We're here to awake and then to embrace the world uh, with, with justice, compassion, and humility. That's the revolution. Well, that's the result of the revolution. The revolution is to change our psyches. Will that happen? I don't know. Will it happen by Tuesday? I'm just checking my time. Uh, probably not. But that's, that's the future of, of religion, if it has one other than more of the same, will come if we can enter into that revolution. So let me end with this suggestion. If you don't have a meditation practice, <clears throat> and again, I'm not saying you have to sit cross-legged on cushions, but something that takes you from what uh, is called narrow mind to spacious mind, from the mind of of the ego to the mind of the, the, the aliveness itself. If you don't have something that does that for you, find something that does that for you. If you do have something that does that for you, do it on a daily basis if you can, or a regular basis at least. That's the revolution, and that will bring about the only transformation that will allow us to not just survive, but to thrive along with, not just on, the planet. Thank you.